All right, community of faith, I'm so glad you're here on this backside of spring break. Have you recuperated from your recuperation? You know, uh, if you're online, welcome. We're in this series that's going to be life-changing for many of us, the one another's of the Bible. And we started out by saying that the first one is love one another. It starts vertical. It's from God to us. He loved us first, but it goes horizontal. So many churches, they just stay vertical. It kind of stays between them and God, them and God. But he says, I want this to be seen. I want everyone to know that you love me because you love one another. Last week, Marco taught on unity. It goes right along with it. Now, this week, I'm going to teach you and talk about, I think, what is probably the hardest one. And so to get ready for this, I want us to do this little spiritual exercise that we do from time to time so you can learn how to do it all throughout the day. But I want you just to close your eyes right there where you are. This sermon today is especially for believers. If you're not a believer yet, you're going to enjoy hearing how God does some things. But if you're a believer, there's a power to do this. And so we're going to call upon that. First of all, I just want you to thank God for something that he's done for you in these last few days, maybe even these last few hours. Just one or two things. Be thankful. Secondly, I want you just to tell him what you love about him. Pick one or two characteristics and say, this is something I really love about you. That's called praise. I love that you're so full of grace. You're so full of mercy. That you're so humble. Whatever it is that you like about him, tell him right now. And then I want us to do what I call spiritual breathing as we breathe out the bad stuff and breathe in the good stuff. I want you to breathe out first. If you're a believer, you just say this, Holy Spirit, you live inside of me. Is there anything in me that's going to cause me to get my shoulders up, to be uh, thinking I'm not going to do this that Mark's talking about today because it's straight from your word. Is there anything that's going to, that's separating me from you right now? And then just let him bring that to your mind. Is there any sin in your life? Don't try to dredge it up. And when he brings it, you just say, I agree with you, that's sin. That's a simple, that's called confession in the Bible. You don't have to crawl across broken glass. You don't have to, you know, berate yourself. You just say, I agree with you. And the Bible says he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. Just let that bubble up right now as the Holy Spirit will show you if there's anything that he wants to do. And then you breathe in just by saying, Holy Spirit, I've breathed out that stuff, the carbon dioxide of the spiritual life, the sin. Now I want to breathe you in completely. Fill me completely. You already live inside of me, but I want you to fill me up so that those fruits that only you can bear in me come to pass. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Fill me completely right now. Father, I thank you that you have 
given us the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life for us, that you've given us your Holy Spirit to live in us, to empower us, to do what I'm going to talk about today. Enable us to do this so the world can see that you're God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so what is it we're going to talk about today? Submit to one another. Submit to one another. There's something I think in Americans that we just kind of have a problem with submission, don't we? It's kind of in our DNA. I mean, we were kind of founded on rebellion. That king of England is not going to tell us what to do, right? And, and so we, you know, had, threw some tea in the ocean and did all kinds of other things and, to let them know that. In some ways, it seems almost anti-American to give in and submit. I read this week an actual radio transcript from 1995 from a, a U.S. naval ship to Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland. This is 1995. Let me just read it to you. First, the Americans. Please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. The Canadians answer back. Recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Americans, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course, Canadians. No, I say again, you divert your course, Americans. This is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course. 15 degrees north, that's one five degrees north, or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. Canadians, this is a lighthouse, but it's your call. Wow, narrowly avoided a war with Canada right there, you know, crazy. I I read also about a mild-mannered man. He was reading a book on being self-assertive, and he decided to start at home. So he stormed into his house. He pointed a finger in his wife's face and he said this, from now on, my word around here is the law. I want you to prepare me a gourmet meal. I want you to make my bath. Then when I've eaten and finished my bath, guess who's going to dress me and comb my hair? The mortician, his wife answered. It sounds about right, right? I was thinking about today, and as I was thinking about it, I wanted to kind of tell you a little parable. It's the tale of two kings. So listen as I share this. Once upon a time, there was a king who lived in luxury. I mean, he had things that every other king who had lived in all of history would have envied. He could snap his fingers, basically, and send out messages all over the kingdom. His palace was had this amazing system of pipes and all he could have hot water for his bath he could have cool drinking water right at his right inside of the palace and he had a system of lamps that could make the whole palace as bright as noonday even at midnight it's for entertainment i mean he could twitch his finger and the funniest court jester 
in the whole world would be right there and, and making him laugh. And he could twitch his finger again, dismiss the court jester, and all of a sudden the gladiators would be there, blood and sport and violence. He could twitch his finger again, and beautiful men and women would come in. The gladiators gone. They would strip naked and they would perform for him, for his sensual pleasure. He could dismiss his wife at his whim and seek another. He could flip his finger a little bit to the right and have casual sex with any woman that he wanted. This was a king unto himself. He was wealthy and secure. He had even saved up for the future. This king, he had any food he wanted. He had any drink he wanted, and it was kept cool by this system of refrigeration. And being a ruler, the king bowed to no authority but himself. He could say whatever he wanted. He could do whatever he pleased. His philosophy was this. If I say something, then it is true for me. If I do something, then it is right for me. For I am my own Lord. I make my own truth. I mean, no one could tell him otherwise. He could choose to do whatever he pleased. And all would be well until he ran into another king just like himself. Then all hell would break loose, literally. And unfortunately, there were millions of other kings like himself, each seeking their own investment, each, each trying to, in their own right, you know, holding up for their own rights to live as they pleased so the stronger kings would crush the weaker kings. But then the weaker kings would band together and begin to fight back. And again, all hell would break loose. These tiny kingdoms became dog eat dog each clamoring for their own rights, heartless. Sadly, even after winning cruel battle after battle, the king grew old and infirm and his health and power waned. And he found those around him had no use for him anymore. And he was discarded and that king died, disillusioned, heartbroken, and alone. You recognize the king? It's a modern day American. We are able to do things that the kings of old only dreamed about. We have comforts that they never understood or even could imagine. Now, let me tell you about another king. Once upon a time, there was another king. He was so powerful that there was literally nothing he couldn't do. He was so rich that there was literally nothing he didn't own. He was so comfortable that there was literally no happiness he didn't enjoy. But this king, he did something very strange. He looked out over his kingdom and he saw that his people, his subjects were suffering. They looked like sheep without a shepherd. So this king did something unheard of. He stepped down from his throne because he valued his people even more than he valued himself. And he left his power and his riches and his comforts behind. 
And he went to his people. He loved his people more than he loved his own rights, even more than his own life. He went to them in their darkness and despair, and the people really couldn't understand what was going on because why did the king love his subjects? I mean, if you looked at it from outside, they weren't lovely at all. In fact, they were hateful and crude and ugly. I mean, there was no beauty in them at all. They were haughty, disbelieving, proud. And though the king had stepped down from his throne to help them find a better way and a better life in ignorance and pride and in self-righteous hatred, they spit on him and they screamed at him. And eventually, they brutally killed him. But even as the king hung dying, he forgave the very ones who were killing him. And if you follow this king, he demands the same of you. But that's not the end of the story for this king's father, who was the most powerful being in the universe, raised him from the dead. And because he had been obedient, to the point of death, and because he valued others more than himself, he lifted him high, and he gave him a name that's above every other name, that his name, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Do you recognize this king? Yeah, it's the Lord Jesus. The Bible says it like this. Let me just read it to you. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. You know, as a pastor, many, many times I've heard the criticism of the Bible that it fails miserably to speak to the great moral problems of the day. You think about the great moral problems of the New Testament, some of the same ones today, imperialism, slavery, racism, poverty, war. But I want to let you in on a little secret that most people have missed. The Bible speaks directly and brings a solution to every single one of those things. We miss it because God's ways are so totally different than our ways that we don't even see it. And and we don't understand what he's trying to say. That's why it's so important that we get this today. Let me read to you from a speech delivered in 1966 in the United States. 
When a culture or society is confronted by some moral problem, some grave social issue, what do we do? First, we must somehow gain the attention of the public to this problem. This may involve a march or maybe even a riot or some other kind of violence in order to put it on the front pages and bring it to the attention of others. Then we must get an appropriation from some funding body, private or governmental. Then a committee must be appointed to go into the matter and to study it thoroughly. Then the committee must publish its report. After the report is out and we have all studied it, then we proceed to organize pressure blocks and boycotts and pickets and other methods of bringing pressure on the right people to correct the abuses which exist. This is the approach society inevitably takes to solve its problems. But inevitably, such a solution creates as many or more problems than it actually solves. Thus, we get involved deeper and deeper in a descending spiral of difficulty, which breaks out continually in volatile political activism, riots, and violence. This is the story of what is happening in our country today. 1966. Man, I'm glad we've come a long way since then, right? Oh, wait. Maybe not. Seems like it's still the same. In contrast, I want you to look at what the Bible teaches in our passage today. Ephesians chapter 5, we'll start with verse 18. It says this, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it begins to share some things. If you're filled with the Spirit, it'll look like this. And in verse 21, and it says, and further submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. It's one of the things that shows up when we're filled with the Spirit. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What Paul, the apostle, does here in Ephesians is he addresses himself to Christians and he says to us as individuals, start right where you are, right in the place that you are. Don't Try to solve your problems on the community level or the national level first. Start as an individual. Start right where you are. And all the exhortations and admonitions of Scripture always come down to really personal stuff. And he says, you start with you. And when you read through the New Testament, you note an absence of any appeal for societal action in solving all these basic problems of society. The solution is always addressed to individuals. Start where you are by doing this one small thing. And by the way, it's in command form. It's a continuation of being filled with the Spirit, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The Greek, the way that it's constructed, shows that it flows straight from you're filled with the Spirit, therefore you can do this. And I think it's important that we see this and we understand it because if we want to be a part of the solution to what's going on in our world today, we've got to have an intelligent understanding of how God does it and how he reveals the heart of the problem. And when people urge us to to get involved in this or that kind of political activity. We've got to understand the great 
basic underlying fundamental realities that scripture always brings to us. If we're going to understand the world in which we live and the reasons for violent conditions that break out in recurrent cycles in human history, we got to get back to the basics of why there is strife among us. And I suppose there's not one of us here, you know, that doesn't at some time or another ask ourselves the question, how can I get the greatest satisfaction out of life? How can I maximize expression of my potential? How can I escape boredom and monotony in my life? How, in other words, can I fulfill myself? Now, there's nothing wrong with to ask these questions. It's obvious that God put this in our heart, that he put in our heart a desire to express ourselves and a desire to find meaning and purpose and fulfillment. It's not wrong to ask the questions, but it's absolutely essential that we understand that the phrasing of the question is essential. And we're phrasing it in the wrong way. When we ask the question this way, how can I get satisfaction out of life? How can I fulfill myself? We're asking as though we are the only person in the world, as if we are all alone in the world and we're responsible for our own self-development. Others, of course, are responsible for their self-development. We're all trying to get the same thing. They're going to go about it their way. I'm going to go about it my way. The basic drive of the human heart. This universal approach to every problem. It can be expressed in the question heard frequently, what will I get out of this? What's in it for me? And you hear it on every side. Look beneath the surface of any violence. What's in it for me? Look beneath the surface of any conflict, even war. What's in it for me? Look beyond and behind every political argument. What's in it for me? What's in it for us? Under this approach, the inevitable always occurs. Sooner or later in my attempts to develop myself and gain satisfaction, something happens. I find myself on a collision course with someone else who is attempting the same thing with the same motives, and I find my answers to uh, my efforts to satisfy myself are sabotaged by their efforts to satisfy themselves. I feel he's standing in my way, and he feels I'm standing in his way. Now, this person might be the boss. It might be the spouse. Could be the children. I insist on my rights. They insist on their rights. So we become rivals, enemies, obstacles to each other. And it gets to the point where we can't even talk to each other. Those same old suspicions and those things, they, we have them deep inside of us. The same old charges are hurled over and over again. And this, I submit to you, is the pathetic pattern of human history. And unfortunately for many of us, it's the pathetic pattern of our lives. But the Apostle Paul, he, he takes a different tact. And he changes the whole question. First, he reminds us that as believers, there's a third party involved in any human reaction, in any 
interaction with another human being, there's always a third party involved. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then secondly, he reveals to us the true way of finding fulfillment. And he does it all in that one brief statement. So let's just break it down quickly. The Christian must never forget in every relationship of life, there's another person present. It's not merely a problem of what I want versus what you want. There's not only the two of us, there's also the Lord Jesus Christ present. Now, a worldling, you know, someone that's not a believer who doesn't recognize the universal presence of Christ, his main or her main concern is what I want versus what you want. But to a Christian, that's always secondary. Because the question we have to ask, what does Christ want me to do? The great question must always be, what does Jesus Christ living in me expect of this relationship? And then Paul gives us an example. Marriage. I wish he wouldn't do that. You know, I think it would be so much easier to ignore without examples, especially of wives and husbands. Listen to what he says. For wives... Verse 22 of chapter 5 in Ephesians. This means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He's the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands submitting, this means love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church, he gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any blemish. Instead, she'll be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother, is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So I say again, each man must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Wow, you know, so much controversy today in those verses, but if we understand the principle behind it, so much of that goes away. See, if we don't recognize the presence of the Holy Spirit, then there's no way we can submit to one another. He starts by saying, Submit to one another. He says, wives, you do it this way. Husbands, you do it this way. But, you know, if we don't see the Holy Spirit there, then we can only see the two of us. And our pride immediately gets in the way and grips us and holds us and refuses to yield. You know, let him back down first. Let her back down first. I mean, I'm right. So, you know, if I'm right, don't I have the right to hold on to that right? and be right, and they can just be wrong, and they can go on being wrong, probably in a whole other relationship eventually, but they're going to just keep doing it. We don't yield to one another, but when we see Christ, and we see that we're not alone, we stop asking, what am I going to get out of this, and we ask, what does Jesus want? What's he after in this? What responsibility do I have to him in this situation? And that's where the difference comes. Our first responsibility is to obey him. You see, whatever you yield to, that's your Lord. Whatever you yield to, that's your God. 
If we insist on satisfying the urges within ourselves for self-justification, vindication, then that's our God. If we're willing to obey Christ, we prove he is our God. We can't live with his displeasure if we're really Christians. Paul said it like this, the love of Christ constrains me. I can't help it. His love is so powerful in me. But then that brings us to the the second part. When I'm at odds with another person, no matter where or who it is, Christ, if I see that he's there, he immediately as a believer makes me aware of what he's taught me and what he's commanded me and what he's asked of me. So why is it wrong to ask, how can I get what I want in order to find fulfillment for myself? Because it's only, he says, when I forget myself and devote myself to another's fulfillment that I will find my own heart running over with grace and purpose and glory and satisfaction. It's one of the fundamental mysteries of life. And it, 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 we, we see it every day. People say, I'm going to go out and make a lot of money. I'm going to just live for myself. And at the end, they have what I call destination sickness. They get to where they were going all along, and it's empty. And that's exactly what Jesus said. The one who lives for himself, even if he gains the whole world, he loses himself. That's what he's talking about. The person who loves and does not think of himself, finds himself. The one who's constantly seeking his rights will never find him. So here's my question this morning, just simply, will you dare to do this? Would you dare to try this radical revolutionary principle right where you live? See, it's not that we haven't known it. It's that we don't act on it. We acknowledge that it's true as believers, But when it comes to a specific situation and someone's, you know, cutting us off from what we want, we say, well, at any cost, I'm going to have my rights. I demand my rights. But God's given us the solution. Do we want to try it? Paul says it's easy. It's simple. But it can only be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Subject yourself. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And the world is waiting to see this demonstration. They don't understand this kind of action. They only would see it among Christians. That's why the early Christians, when they did this, Christianity exploded across the the scene. It went from 120 ragtag little group of people to billions of people. Now, I'm not talking about boundaries. I'm not talking about not having boundaries, but I'm talking about being like Christ to everyone around us. Husbands, I want you to think about it really clearly, okay? Because as you think about it, and wives, as you listen to this, I think we'll get it a little bit. That's why he used marriage, and I'm just going to close with this. It says again, let me just read it to you. Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she'll be holy and without fault. You hear what it's saying there? Christ loved us 
before we were attractive. The Bible says while we were yet sinners, he died for us. Unlike how we choose wives, like, whoo, she's good looking, you know? She's the one I want. Christ didn't choose his wife that way. He didn't look for an attractive woman or an intelligent woman or even a faithful woman. He chose an unlikely woman. And then he set out to make her attractive and wise and faithful at the cost of his own life. See, we weren't chosen because we were holy. We weren't chosen because we were lovable. Before we could look pretty or sound wise or be faithful, the love of God came to us. And the regenerating love of God gave us new birth inside. So Christ loved us before we were attractive. And not only that, he didn't simply die for an unworthy woman. The powerful, saving, cleansing, beautifying, life-changing effects of the cross were directed to a fiancé who found him repulsive. Wow. Who is this Jesus when you think about it? Really? And a practical implication, says John Piper, that in the mystery of marriage is that a husband and wife must pursue their own joy in the joy of the other. And that's when true joy is found. See, Christ died for the church in order that he might present to himself a beautiful bride. He endured the cross for the joy of marriage that was set before him. But what's the ultimate joy of the church? It's it's to be presented as a bride to the sovereign Christ. So Christ sought not his own joy, but the joy of the church. So he sets the example, husbands. The love precedes the beauty. The love precedes the beautification. Now, I just want to give you a graphic biblical picture. It's in the book of Ezekiel. Probably haven't read out of the prophet Ezekiel lately in your daily time with God, but it's a picture of God's marriage to his people, foreshadowing his marriage to us, the bride of Christ, the church. Here's what he says. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to have compassion for you, but you were cast out into an open field. You were abhorred on the day that you were born. This is an amazing depiction of what happened with babies in in that day. When they were born, the midwife, would cut the cord and then scrub the baby with salt to try to, you know, get the germs and the disinfection. And then they would rub oil all over the baby and wrap it in swaddling clothes like they did with Jesus for seven days. And that process was repeated every seven days for 40 days. This didn't happen to us. It says we were cast out. And there's what he says. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I spoke to you in your blood, live. This is what it means to be the wife of God, the wife of Christ, cast out, bloody, dirty. I mean, this basically aborted baby in a field in its own blood, placenta and all, and God himself, Jesus 
comes by and looks at this bloody heap as good as dead. And he says, ah, at last, my wife, my beloved, my chosen one, live. He goes on, I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed, your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love and vulnerable. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a marriage covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. And the splendor I gave you made your beauty perfect. That's Jesus. Husbands, that's what we're to be. Maybe like one of my friends, you look at your spouse today and go, it's like poison. That's not a reason to get out of your vow. It's a reason to double down as you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Again, I'm not talking about boundaries or abusiveness or any of that kind of stuff right now, but I'm talking about when two people come together and they say, I yield to you. Even if I'm right, the relationship is more important. It's so much more important. And the interesting thing, guys, as husbands, he says, we're to yield first. We're to lay down our life for our, for a wife. You know, we're always saying, I'd take a bullet for you. And your wife's going like, you always say that, but you never do it. You know, here's the thing. In the daily things of life, are you doing that? See, that's why I think Paul, you know, I was like, oh, Paul, you've quit preaching and gone to meddling now. You know, you're getting into, into my stuff. But you begin to see what this looks like. I want you just to close your eyes. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But you can only do in the power of the Holy Spirit as he gives you the ability to do that. What would that look like in your life today? What would that look like in your home this afternoon? What would that look like in your workplace, out there in the community? When you come upon that stupid Democrat or stupid Republican that doesn't see the world right, what does it look like? looks like Jesus and the world is starving for that. Our young generation is so hungry for that. We're so polarized. Christians, it ought not be. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. If you're like me, you're going to have to say, Holy Spirit, I need you in this. Some of us husbands, we need to repent. Say, I need to go get things right with my wife. Or I can't finish, I can't go through with this divorce until I've I've done this. Because we've been at each other's throats. She's supposed to meet my needs. He's supposed to meet my needs. 
She's supposed to fulfill me. It's like a clash. No, you find your joy in the joy of your wife. She finds her joy in your joy, and your joy is made full. Seek your life, and you'll lose it. Give up your life for Christ and the gospel. And what he says is you allow the Holy Spirit to fill you, and you will find it. And not only that, he says you'll be the greatest in the kingdom of God that's to come. The first shall be last, and the last first. God, we can't do this. But if we did it, if we somehow did it, the world would be stunned. Our marriages would turn around today. God, enable us to do this. Submit to one another, sweet Jesus, out of reverence for what you taught us and who you are and the power that you've given us to do it. And I ask it in your mighty name, Lord Jesus Christ. Come kingdom of God upon us. Be done will of God over us. Let nothing stop what you want to do in the everyday, moment by moment, submitting, yielding to you, not even really to other people, but to you in our lives. Amen. I love you, church. Go home and practice this crazy, radical thing. And by the time you're back next week, you're going to have a story to tell me. And I can't wait. We might even put it on the screen. I love you. There's going to be people here to pray for you. Okay, we're here for you. I love you, community of faith. Have a great rest of your weekend.